Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 160 with my friend Gray McMurray. This is Gray's second time on the podcast. Um, he and I have a pretty in-depth conversation about nuance, um, language, how we talk to each other, how we shouldn't talk to each other, um, and how Gray and I talk to each other. And I've always enjoyed talking with Gray, and I, I say it up front in the podcast, he's one of the f- first people in my life, um, one of the few people in my life, to really push me to think about what it is I say. Uh, and he does it in this podcast in a great way, and that's why I want to talk to him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I always do uh, when I talk to Gray. So without further ado, further ado, this is Gray McMurray. Hope you're all doing well, and we'll talk to you soon. You're, yeah, and you're one of the most visually striking people I think I've ever seen in my life. So, oh, stop it! Say it again. Come on. You're now. like a, <laughs> you're a human peacock in all of the best ways. Um, well, Gray McMurray, uh, this is your uh, your second time here, so we're not going. I'm not going to bore any bore my listener with uh, your your bio. Um, I reached out to you just kind of randomly out of the blue, uh, uh, like two days ago about doing the podcast again. And, um, you know, there's a lot has happened since you and I have chatted last. Um, yeah. we were in your apartment less than yes. six feet from each other, um, mm-hmm. sipping tea, I believe. Yep. And <clears throat> now the rest has happened. And I have been sort of, um, you know, having existential crisis after existential. What's the opposite of existential? What's an internal crisis? Or is that well, what an existential like, crisis is? An existential crisis is is a, is like a crisis of awareness of the superego, right? You got right. an observation of yourself from yeah. outside of yourself. Okay. So it's ultimately the most inside. Maybe an external crisis is actually the opposite. That's a very good question. Hold I, on. Well, you know, it's like extrinsic and intrinsic. You know, like I think like it, extrinsic is some sort of external motivation outside of your own – like a piece of candy or whatever. Intrinsic is the feeling you get from being generous, being helpful, being kind, like all of the sort of just, it feels good to do a thing for a certain reason, um, regardless of any extra intrinsic. Totally. But, uh, but so check this out, what the internet has told me, please not that I didn't hear what you said, because I agree with you. The, the difference is for me, it's like when I hear existential crisis, I think more of what like, what I've used that phrase for myself mm-hmm. and it's a deeply selfish, not in a negative term, but it's a delf, it's a completely self-centered experience of not being able to reconcile myself with my life. Mm-hmm. So it has to do with this like awareness of whatever fog I'm yeah. in. So yeah. it feels like com- actually a very inner thing. Yeah. Like it's like a malady of your inner life. Right. And this says the opposite is a hunger for action, a settlement with the questions that aren't answered and are perhaps unanswerable. Unas- so like the idea of, not that's that that makes sense i wouldn't have said that it's like the thing of saying um indifference is the opposite of hate or affection or of love whatever you mm-hmm. know what i mean yeah. can i just tell you uh, i mean i'm gonna tell you why i reached out to you in a second but i just want to say i love you again right now you. up front buddy <laughs> you just sort of reinforce what i'm about to say um <clears throat> one of the things i have been most aghast at um and I feel like I've been having a reaction to um, in the world since the last time we spoke. Um, and the reason I reached out to you is because I feel like you're a person of nuance. You, you're someone who thinks long and hard about words and how they're used. And but you also use a lot of words to explain things. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. Um, no, no, no. I take it. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of 
there, while I agree with about 100% of the way the world is feeling, like the way the direction most people are pointed in terms of the anger and the outrage and the frustration around just the way the world is talking to about anything, doesn't matter what we're talking about, but mm -hmm. I have been kind of terrified. I've been having these triggering moments of like, no, th there's bumper stickers everywhere and there's a real compliance around language and the use of a language or the use of a certain way of speaking on the right and on the left and whatever. And I just kept thinking, who in my life is someone who like has challenged me to be like, nope, you got to think deeper about that. And it's like, God damn it, it's Gray McMurray. I, we don't need to go in depth about like we've had a few hotel room conversations surrounding the death of my father and the death mm -hmm. of your father. And for I, some reason, I remember the chairs in that room so well. It was dark, too. We had the lights off. Dark. I know. I know. I remember that very well. And you I was saying some things that were patently bumper sticker sort of approaches to grief and whatever. And, you know, whatever. We were being human beings. But you were sort of one of the people in my life who was like, no. Nope, 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 nope. Like, I know you're fucked up. I know you're angry. I know you're sad. I know you're depressed. I know you're all of those things. But you're, I'm not going to let you get away with being lazy about how you think about this. Well, I mean, I, okay. I don't know if I would have been so aggressive as to say lazy. No, you didn't say those words. But, but yeah. what I'm saying is my impression was like, oh, man, like, that's what you taught me in that moment, uh -huh. whether you yeah. wanted, whether you wanted to or not. And I kind of just like, man, I don't have a question necessarily about what, uh -huh. what to talk about, but I'm very worried about, I'll say this. I'm very worried about the difficult, the level of difficulty it takes to get nuance in any discussion going on right now in the public. And it scares me and I don't know why. Um, and I don't know what I should do about it. So I'm just curious to get your, pick your brain about well, that. I, you know, I think, I think part ironically, and I think this is where pendulum swinging you know is both pulling back a curtain and closing another one a little bit but like mm -hmm. you know i think one thing that's very evident now is the lack of nuance has to do with how much a couple other perspectives of daily life has lacked nuance and that these sort of like right now sort of zealous language has everything expressly to do with trying to respond to, to a, you know, more than an era's worth of no care, no, no actual nuance at all. Like, you know, I mean, the idea of having to explain what, that if you have the, I, I mean, I remember being in a in an assembly. It's the first time I've ever, I've ever heard this idea. There were these. There was this guy who was a teacher in my high school and junior high, whose name was Ivan Hageman, and he was half German, half um, African American, and he was this dude that like everyone knew. Also studied martial arts. He was like a kind of rip guy. He was like very severe. He would do this thing as like a joke that eventually everyone in the school knew that if you went up behind him and pretended to hold a gun to his back, he would grab your arm and very quickly have you in a position where he could break your arm. Mm -hmm. And like, just like very fat. And everyone would do like, oh, he's been so bad at that, you know? <laughs> but he was like, he was a really intense, like, so, like he, had a, he had a great severity. He was just, he was a really like lovely sort of like, like, he he carried a lot of reverence. He he carried a, a strongness with him, mm -hmm. and him and his brother ended up starting this school. And I looked it up at one point years ago um, in East Harlem, which when they started it, was like a super crazy bad 
where neighborhood that they were in, the block they were in in particular, like mm-hmm. really fucking rough place. Pardon me. Um, and just they had, they, had, they went through a lot of hoops to try to build this space that was this continuing education. I think it still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, they were either continuing it from their folks or I can't remember exactly what, but his brother looked exactly like him, was a, um, I believe was a DA, was like a city DA. Like, like um, I feel like he was a, like, Either he was a civil rights attorney or he was a district attorney, like defense in New York. And he was he was like, this was not a corporate. This guy came to speak to us talking about the law and talking about how law affects different people from different communities differently. And it was one of the first times I heard that those conversations that I think we all heard at one point in time about. And by we all, (laughs) I mean, everybody. But but like I've heard that other people have had the same conversation with somebody's like, you're driving a bus and you have to swerve and you have to kill a woman who's 87 years right. old. The sort or, of ethical, ethical yeah. quandary. Ethical dilemmas that I had that when, when I was like a freshman in college or a sophomore in college. I took an ethics class actually. And we talked right. about that for a whole semester. It was fascinating. Exactly. Right. Okay. So like this was one of the first times that I had somebody <laughs> present that and everybody had their very immediate response. And then he would present a bunch of sort of circumstantial things that would change your response. And then he would make it clear that whatever you thought was obvious wasn't mm-hmm. and that everything can be thought to sort of another degree. Right. And anyway, he, he was going on and then he said this thing, and this is the specifically to the point of talking about nuance and talking about right now. And so we're talking, this has got to be like 1994, I'm going to guess. And he said this thing to an auditorium, um, mostly white people. Uh, and uh, he said, um, I mean, you know, for example, he was going on and then he just said as almost as an aside, he said, you know, who here really actually doesn't think that they're racist? Because we're definitely all racist. And I remember him saying it and not to cast myself in some sort of positive light. It was just this thing of like, it felt very evident to me. I, I was like, that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. There's there's no doubt, and I get how it's true for me because I understand the moments where I'm scared where it doesn't make sense on the street. Yeah. I understand that I've been sort of conditioned in a certain way. Like, like what this means is actually such a dramatically big idea that when people have great sort of um, feel a personal attack or on behalf of themselves or someone else when speaking about something like that, it's like that's actually part of the lack of nuance around that discussion. And this one kid who I will call out. His name was Patrick Holiday, And like that, I, we weren't buddies. I'm not going to say like, I don't know what that Poor man Patrick. turned into, but like he, like he put his hand up and he was like, I'm not, I don't think that's true. I'm not at all. And I, and part of it might've been like in my fact. How old were you at this time around me? I'm uh, like 13, 14. Okay. Let's give Patrick a little pass. Just a little, exactly. no, a that's tiny what I'm saying. one. No, no, no. I'm, I'm like, so I'm speaking as if I have this feeling about this person <clears throat> yeah. who is an adult who's, possibly a completely different person. So it's like, this is not a comment. This is like my little 13 year old head, but because of whatever, and he was a year older than me. And because of whatever I thought about him, it felt easy to disagree with his idea. Mm -hmm. And I didn't make any, we didn't, we didn't have an interaction in that moment. I just remember that moment and like him saying that. And then this man who was Ivan Hageman's brother, just saying, well, basically just being like, well, you're wrong. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm going to explain to you why you're wrong. I wanted to say it, but it was just this first time of anyone talking about racism, not as if it was this thing that was in a book that happened 30 years ago then, but rather like 
pull back, like pull it back a second. Understand that it has to do with how you walk to school. Right. Understand that it has to do with sitting in your house. You know what I mean? It's like, and so that nuance has not existed. It didn't, it didn't exist then. I just remember real, like that was the first time that that conversation opened up to me. And yes, I grew up in New York in a, in a place with a lot lot of people and I went through a lot of different communities just to get to school every day. Yeah. It's one of the reasons, sorry to interrupt you, Gray, but it's like one of the reasons I like talking to you about these issues because it's why I like talking to Aim Gordon too, because, um, you know, I grew up in a very small town, like a very small rural town in Ohio. And I like, to me, it's interesting to hear where on the Venn diagram, like your upbringing overlap with mine and like the things like how much we have in common actually is way, way more. And it's just a lot of talking past one another um, because yeah. of these sort of, I mean, institutional, I don't know if institutional is the right word, but just these things that have been baked in the cake for millennia, sure. but, but also just even as few, far back as the last 20 years, you know, absolutely. the absolutely. dare program, you know, I remember watching, having sitting in a gymnasium, watching the like reefer madness video and the sort of caricaturized group on cops, the TV show, where it was like, it was either white trash, which were people like me, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and my, my relatives or black mm-hmm. people. being wrestled to the ground by cops you know and it was like and you waited for the punchline at the end of the episode and every time they got arrested it's like the credits rolled and it was like you know that's that was normalizing that sort of approach to viewing people it was a show right it was like like that's been a show like my entire life (laughs) i think it just recently went off the air just went off the air yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. no that's i mean it's the like um uh what did that just make me think of? Um, oh, I can't remember. It just zoomed out of my head. What the hell just zoomed out of my head? Something about Ayn. Just the differences in our upbringings. Maybe like I. Anyway, like I. Anyway, just to go back to the your point about the lack of nuance in these discussions. Mm-hmm. It's like I. I don't know. I just am worried right now, or I guess I'm trying to figure out how much I'm. Like I think I had a very similar realization. I was 19 years old when a, a Trinidadian man showed me some scars on his head because cops beat him for playing steel drums in the like the 1940s and 50s. You know, I, I you know as a 19 year or 18 year old kid, I was in high school at that point, and then I knew Cliff my whole life until he passed away uh, like a year and a half ago. There was that stuff, so it's like I knew of police brutality. I knew that police would do things for no reason. I didn't know. I didn't really understand what that meant, how that grafted on the U.S. society in my day to day life. But I was like, "That's fucked up." And then I, you know, just Cliff took me to a black barber shop. I didn't even know that that was a thing. I didn't even know black people needed to get their hair cut at a different. I didn't like what. And then you know, because Cliff took me and sat me in a chair and just told me to be quiet, I sat there for two hours. Cliff got his haircut for about fifteen minutes of those two hours, and they just shot the shit for the rest of the time. And I was like, "Oh." Oh, like, okay, all right. This this is like another piece of a puzzle, like of a puzzle of humanity. Is like somebody gave me a piece, and I just am thinking, like, maybe how much, how, how many pieces have people been given or not been given, and how much am I assuming about people? What is my responsibility to help people fill in those pieces, pieces that I was just by random fortune had the the luck to be across people who gave me those pieces, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, like even in something you just said, I, when you say, I know that I, I've learned through things like this, that cops will do t- sometimes things for no reason. And even saying that, like, I think, I think they actually absolutely are doing it for a reason. And 
it might not be something that they're necessarily right. aware of, mm-hmm. but there's absolutely, and like one of the gifts of this moment is like how much this conversation and how much stuff that has been written actually over the past half century, mm-hmm. there does exist that talks about what some of these sort of institutions are, where they come from, how sort of large scale undercover movements sort of, you know, it's it's not too far from talking about why the Second Avenue subway was closed for a very long time to keep certain neighborhoods in New York City away from having public transportation so that the communities that live there would stay there and wouldn't be traveling out. Oh and man, I yeah, I mean the number of steel bands I work with in and in, in see in Brooklyn where it takes twenty five minutes to walk to the nearest subway, you know. Exactly. And like that those things go that way. It's like a cop more readily expressing like physical and like abusive power over a person of color in a socioeconomically sort of uh, challenged neighborhood, but it challenged, it's a ridiculous word, in, in poorer neighborhoods is not confusing. Like there's, there, it's not, it's not just like, here's this, here's what I would do to everybody, but these are the people that nobody cares about so I can do it to them. It's not, it's actually born of something far more nefarious and something that has to do with money and capitalism. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't pretend to understand or be able to sort of speak in any sort of intelligent way about any of it. But I will say that since protests started happening, I have read and learned about a lot of things that I knew whispers of. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like what? um, That police departments are born of a deeply frightening idea in the United States that they were like basically they were policing capturing runaway slaves mm-hmm. that some of the I, I i didn't know that like i didn't know that 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 idea comes from there now what a what a security force is does not come from there but what a security force in urban america comes from there mm-hmm. that's wild there's things too that, like for me i didn't understand or, or the amount of money like or that like the amount of money that police budgets have compared to other i mean that's right. that is completely there's some of the conversations i've been hearing um which i to be clear when i'm when i'm complaining about a lack of nuance i think like just for me personally like i i feel like i'm a good reader of someone's intention and Mm -hmm. so i'm not gonna like i'm not gonna throw somebody out like i'm not gonna be like oh fuck you you're ridiculous because you said abolish the police and i think that that's a bumper sticker like like Mm -hmm. that just because I feel like that's not the thing I want, I'm not, I understand what you're saying. So let's talk yeah. further, you know, and to, yeah, be, yeah. and to be clear, like there are conversations that are happening now. It's just, I'm just trying to note my own, like, I think I'm not good at the bumper sticker. I understand it. I, I see its purpose. I don't want to tell people they shouldn't do it. But like the thing that I am afraid of is like when you don't participate in the bumper sticker conversation and you're willing to wait till the nuance conversation, mm-hmm. like I feel like you're getting, I, I feel judgment or something. And maybe that's just my own insecurity. I'm willing to admit that too. But I, I'm glad though to say that or to notice that conversations are happening around like, why are police called when a, when a raccoon is rabid in the street? Right. Why are police called to a mental health issue? Like right. All when, of these things, yeah. when someone's having, why a do, and like, I understand the danger I, I'm in the way that I can without having had anything to do with it. But, um, why do police officers have qualified immunity? Right. That was another thing I learned about. I didn't know what that was. Um, I mean, I mean, the only reason I, the only reason I knew that is because like 
<laughs> not unlike the fact that the NRA has lobbied the U.S. government to the point that the U.S. government is not able to perform, uh, uh, like, uh, what's what's the word? Uh, they, they can't do studies across periods of time of the effects of guns on private citizens. Mm-hmm. And the effects of gun violence on communities and the effects of guns in schools. And no policeman in any school has stopped any besides like getting down that sort of path. But they can't study the effect of guns on people because of gun lobbyists. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I had an experience a couple days ago. Okay, just this you haven't wild. changed your background in a while, so I'm worried you're gonna I don't be a little know. Okay, too let me serious. let me, let me get let me get serious because this is like this. This is like this. Okay. <laughs> So, all right. So, like, the other day, I'm not kidding. I, I like, see in, a, in my thread, the, I'm, I'm because of an ad showing up while I'm looking at something on bookshop.org, okay? Uh-huh. Which everybody, fucking number down at the bottom of the screen, bookshop.org, okay? That's good. Use that instead of Amazon. It's good. Um, uh, it's a collection of private bookstores. You know what I mean? It's good. It's good. Anyway, um, uh, the what the... Um, AT&T calling plans are. Mm-hmm. And I uh, and I'm like, basically because I've been on auto pay for about a year and a half of my AT&T plan. And the past few months, I've been home a little more often. And um, been, you know, <laughs> pinching my pennies. <laughs> and, um, and just noticed that within the past few months, my phone bill is like within a $10 radius, like off by five bucks each, like it's changing every month. And I knew that that was the case. But when I'm looking at these other plans, I'm like, why is, I don't understand that. I'm a little confused. I just, I just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And so I've had to call in the past year because every, something goes awry every time I've gone out of the country to go play some music. So I've had to call when I've done my change to the plan and then something else gets messed up. But I'm like, I'm not over. You're charging me roaming. I haven't roamed. What do you know? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I have given them an option to let me know this. But so I call and I'm like, hey, I'm looking at your plans. I'm seeing the three possible unlimited plans, which each offer unlimited text, talk and data. Two of the plans offer plus premium data. So unlimited plus premium data. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying that the wording is funny. Mm-hmm. And then the, the highest plan of those three has twice as much premium data as the middle plan. Plus you get HBO Max. And then the starter plan which is about half as much as the plan I was paying for, which had been like a medium plan a year and a half ago. And I say, I'm like, hey, so I'm just seeing this here. And so what I'm paying is that like, and I'm talking to this person who's totally nice and they spend a lot, long time sort of talking me through what my plan is without sort of just getting to the actual fact that I have a plan that's grandfathered in that isn't offered anymore. Mm -hmm. That is unlimited talk. I spend $15 to get unlimited text on top of the plan, which is more expensive than any of the three options that are there. Okay. So I have a plan and, and no premium data, just data that is rollover. So I don't even get unlimited data every month. How long have you been with AT&T? Okay. I've been a long time, but this last plan was like a year and a half. Okay. So I've been with AT&T a long time. I have no idea. And well, I was I was with Verizon for a hot second. Um, I just had real bad customer service. And like my time at the Park Slope Co-op, I'm not able to get past it. And so I haven't gone. Back. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
what happened to the park slump? Park slump. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna. Great. Like, you can't open that can of worms. Okay, I'll, I'll get back. I'll get okay, back to please. it. But see, at the end is I was like, so I was paying more than any of the plans offered. No plan. There's no rollover. They're all unlimited talk text data. Mm-hmm. So I was paying for this thing. I was getting fleeced, like completely fleeced. And so I'm like saying like, wait, so if I go to the lowest available plan, your starter unlimited plan, where I'll be paying half of what I was paying, I'll be paying $35 a month. I'm going to have better everything and I'm not going to have to pay anything on top of it. And the guy's like, yeah, I was like, so it, so it's not, so nobody can let me know this. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, like we can't go into your plan. And I was like, so would somebody choose? That's an interesting argument. Okay. And then it says, well, if you would have called, somebody would have let you know. And I said, well, well I did call and nobody let me know. Now, so I back but up. That's after- also so like, like if, if, like, let's say gas was a delivered service, like you buy gas at the gas station, right? Mm-hmm. And you can choose to buy it at the gas station or they'll bring it to your house. And you, you're like, sure, I'll pay two bucks for you to bring it to my house. But you, they don't tell you the price. They don't tell you that the gas station just has gone down in a dollar over yeah. the last month. But you're going to keep paying the same price. And unless you call the gas station to check, they're not going to charge you. They're going to keep charging the higher price. Of it's like, course. What the fuck? No, no. And, and exactly. You know, it was false, unfortunately, for the dude to tell me that um, if you call, somebody would have let you know that. Mm-hmm. Because I had called and nobody had let me know that. Mm-hmm. But more, most importantly... I, like aside from realizing how hysterical that was and like how neat it was that I was about to sort of pay less. And then I complained enough to somebody who was slightly beyond them. So they, they were like, we're going to take $10 off a month for the next year. And I was like, that's a, fine. Thank you. You know, it was fine. Those people are not the, they're not the whiz. You know what I mean? I know that they are not the whiz. Mm-hmm. Like the whiz is, a, is like, is a wholly unhuman thing, but regardless of any of it, that's what, that behavior makes sense for a corporation, for a machine in a capitalist place. Like, I can sort of say that fairly, like justly, like in, in terms of like treating another person, when a plan is no longer available, where someone doing exactly the same thing, it would cost twice as much. I could say that, like, I feel like justly, they should be regulated where they can't fleece somebody, but fine, they're not. That that's fine. Okay, that's real. But a government treating a group of people that way, you know what I'm saying? Like the difference of that. It's like the like the fact of the like that that that's like that's the expectation where it starts to sort of get broken down with you know, talking about how the government is organizing where states can spend money, where they can choose to spend money, where certain where certain power is flexed, where it's not, what people are regarded as important, what people aren't regarded as just just like any of just like the way that that money is organized and the and the way that it gets sort of handed out as if there is not some like it gets it, like the language gets so tough, but it's like it's not about culpability or morality. It's just that it's is there any way to try to organize some sort of mode of thinking that arrives at legislation that is not based on sort of a capitalist economy? Yeah. I mean, there's because it's, it's evident that government should not be run like a capitalist, like, like, by, like a, like a free market business. I mean, I think I, re- I remember when, um, uh, 
just it got out that cops i don't remember when it was but that that cops had quotas at the end of the month i remember my dad my dad was a truck driver and yeah, yeah. i remember him saying like just be careful at the end of every month he's like there's two things you need to know at the end of every month car salesmen need to get shit off their lot and cops need to meet their quotas he's like so if you're looking to buy a car do it on the 31st but don't drive it on the 31st because you're going to get pulled over you know and i was like wow that's crazy advice and uh, you know i didn't understand like you know, and then and then moving to New York, it really dawned on me. You get a parking ticket; it's one hundred and forty-five dollars. In two thousand and six, it was one hundred and forty-five dollars, dude. Yeah. And I'm playing in so, now. Yes, I've got all the privileges that come with everything in my life, but mm-hmm. I was making seven thousand dollars a year playing with so percussion <laughs> when I moved to New York and got a hundred and forty-five dollar ticket. Like, there's, there's, that's how they generate revenue. Then I realized. What the like to me when you say culpability, I'm and this is where for me where I feel like the breakdown between the government and humans comes is I think humans are pretty driven by accountability. Like, you, mm-hmm. I surround myself by people who I know will hold themselves accountable, will hold me accountable, will and will do it in a, in a mutually agreed upon way so that by the end of our life we haven't killed each other and we get better, you know, like mm-hmm. that's what it means to be alive. And but when you when I interacted with somebody, I the second time I was getting a ticket. Um, you know, the gen- the guy, I, I was, it was, he was not right. I was right. He was in the wrong, but he was writing mm-hmm. a ticket. And he said, sorry, the, the machine's already started. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, sorry, I've already started writing the ticket. Take it up in the courts. And I was like, he's like, if you're fine, you'll be fine. I was like, what kind of accountability system is it where you like this simple, if it's this simple at this level, face to face, then it gets increasingly more spread apart the farther people get away from seeing the face it is that they're accusing of something you know a judge who just meets somebody for the first time in a courtroom like that judge has the least amount of accountability to that person because he doesn't he or she doesn't need to know what that person's life is like what they were going through whether or not that person you know was one foot over the white line and that's why they got the parking ticket and that 145 it's like all because the machine started over we, the line. <laughs> yeah, like all because the machine started. We can't we can't hash this out as a human. Like, no, listen, I'm not saying every federal offense or every misdemeanor offense needs to be like a negotiation on the street between you and a cop. But sure. if if the baseline interaction is the machine started, like what? Why are you surprised then when George Floyd? happens that people are blowing up like this like that's a big jump i just made but when you cut when you toss in all the little mosquito bites Mm -hmm. in the system of Mm -hmm. course like of course why is anybody surprised you know and you know and unless i think unless you've never had any interaction with the cops and my cousin like i have a cousin Mm -hmm. whose husband is white Mm -hmm. um wouldn't give up information Mm -hmm. cops beat the shit out of him like Mm -hmm. It's not always a race thing, but it's a power thing. It's an accountability thing. Those cops have zero accountability because they know this person's not going to rat because this person has zero power in the system. Why? Because the machine started, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. we, we can't even talk about that, you know, like, and I mean, I can't don't talk know. About that. Well, I mean, we can't like that. It just feels so hard. Like, where do you enter the conversation with? Can we just can we start with? I mean, I guess the answer is go to city hall and ask. But um, like, how do you ask the? How do you get people to just stop the machine writing? Like, if we can't do that, then yeah. how are we going to get to 
Well, I mean, the, the thing things, is, like, you know, like, I mean, like, you know what? Like, the the machine has he has to be able to re-input it. Of course, he can re-input it. It's just an easy place to be able to stop the conversation with the person because they have all the power in the world. I remember the first time that I realized like a cop can change your life. Now, again, this I have I have every fucking privilege in the world. I have had I'm deeply lucky. The times that I have been confronted with cops, I have I have been lucky, but I've been terrified. Mm-hmm. And I've been in moments in time where I should have been terrified. You've told and me like, some of those stories in great. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's just like, but like, as if you needed more examples and as if the overwhelming majority of those examples didn't happen to be with people of color who make up a minority of the people in this country and make up a majority of the people who are in the prisons that are not owned by the country, but by businesses in the country. Like, it doesn't, it's not, there aren't too many you don't have to read too many books to make too many leaps. Right. You know it's like black I mean? people make up 13% of the police interactions, but they make up 26% of the overall like violent interactions between cops. Like, like it's just, that's I mean, a it's disparity. Just, that's like, you, yes, sure. There are more interactions with black cops and on white people. There's more white people. But when you yeah. look at, the, I mean, yeah. yes, no, it's like, yes, I see your argument. I know what you're saying. But like you need yeah. to like I'm just asking you to go the next step further and press the other button on the calculator that gives you the percentage so we can talk about that. Like yeah. that's a different thing. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. No, I mean, I you know, and like you know, there was like that recent story about this like how there's not accountability between stations. Mm. And so people who have like get tons of calls at one station and then get moved to another station. Mm-hmm. None of that new information travels. It's like the Catholic church. It's well, exactly. Not only <laughs> I mean, or, or, or like, I mean, I was thinking about this and like, this is, you know, this is bullshit. What's about to come out of my, none of this is true. Hey man, we're in a safe space here, buddy. Exactly. That's what I'm, but I'm saying like, like this is Sigourney's not on your side. She's got your back. That's baby. In fact, Sigourney's on my side and she, when she has been there for me. So we're going to, we're going to go to sort of, we're going to go to this place. All right. That's I'm going to this place. Okay. This oh, one, there we go. That's my dog okay. on you. That's what's this dog <laughs> She's from Russia. That's good. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> but, um, you know, you think about, you know, it's like, and this is some base full projection, just sort of whatever. But like, you imagine, it's not a surprise that a lot of people that are, that fall into certain categories do you find out are in the clergy, are police officers, are school administrators, are, um, you know, like, I mean, there are certain jobs where you confront people that sort of use the powers that they have that have not had to go through too many hoops to get that power, where that's an intoxicant for some people to sort of take that job. I'm not saying that there aren't school administrators who are amazing. Nor am I saying that there aren't cops who are amazing people or priests that have done a righteous job across their life. But it's like the fact is, is that there isn't the same there isn't the same regulation or culpability among any of those jobs. And that doesn't make that. I mean, I I feel like if uh, I mean, it's like the same requirement. I don't know. I think if 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 the ramifications in society were as drastic as a plane crash, Mm -hmm. we would be we would be. Like if everybody felt the same tragedy in a, in a moment like George Floyd, 
the way that everybody on a plane understands how important it is that that pilot not be drunk, have slept mm-hmm. eight hours, not had three other flights right before it, that all the, the flight attendants are trained, like the, that the flight has been scoured for any missing screw. I mean, that there's a reason that heightened regulation exists. Like why? And if I felt like one that it, let's just say this, if I was on a plane and I felt like because three black people walked on, the pilot might act differently. <laughs> I'm getting my ass off that flight. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's not, that's not a, like, why are we okay with it in that part of our society? But when you are interacting with people on every day of your life, I'm sorry. But that's the thing. But, but also what you just said though, think about that. What? If, if, if you thought that the pilot was going to act differently because three people, three black people got on the plane, you would get off the plane. Oh, I'd take them with me too, just to be clear. Okay. I mean, like, I mean, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, of course. But I'm saying like, I wouldn't, that's not, but I, it's a ridiculous situation. Like th- that's my point is like, right, right. No, but and that, we, and that's none of us, w- none of us on that plane would let that plane take off. If there was, if we had proof that, that out of every plane flight, 26% of them were going to end up crashing into a mountain. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. That's like right now, you know how many plane crashes there are? It's like under 0.002%. Oh, totally, like, yeah. So like if you just jumped out to 26%, mm-hmm. I think we would look at planes differently. And I and why we somehow – like I'm just curious where the disconnect is in our humanity where we don't see society the same way. Man, you ever uh, – what's that movie? Did you ever see The Third Man? No. It's a, it's a, it's a cool movie. The whole soundtrack is played on a zither. <laughs> Whoa. And it's uh, I, this woman directed it, whose name I can't remember. Um, and Orson Welles is amazing in it, and he's only in like he like shows up like halfway through. It's amazing. But there's this scene: Orson Welles is this bad guy, and they're at the top of this Ferris wheel, and they're having this very tense moment, and it's like bad guy, good guy, whatever. Mm-hmm. And like he's looking out the Ferris wheel, and now I'm using the example as a sort of to make a point that the distance is not the point. It's the perceived distance. Mm-hmm. But he says this thing at the top of Ferris wheel. He goes from here, how hard would it be to actually pick off any of those people down there? And it's this, just this moment of sort of, you know, your perceived, like from this distance, that death doesn't seem like too much. You could probably pick off 20 of them. You know what I mean? Like right. from here, it's like whatever. I can't remember the re- how the rest of that moment goes, but you know, I mean, all, you know, all of those videos are, and all of those stories are so horrific. The guy that was like a mental health caretaker who was like shot down in the ground. I can't remember what his name was. Like that shit is, I mean, all of them are crazy. The ones that are kids, it's just, it's, it's insane. Mm-hmm. There's something about, there's something. And, and so it's not to say that any is more egregious than another. There's something wild about watching those three dudes just stand around while that guy mm-hmm. is on his, on his neck. When like, it's it's a really long time it's just eight minutes and 46 seconds yeah it's it's just it's so and he's out for three of those minutes and it's just like well this is the thing like i watched i mean i i listen to um you know i watch a lot of mma fighting and ufc stuff and i follow like most of my instagram is like jujitsu artists they're practitioners and fighters and boxers and stuff and i I just love watching fighting Mm -hmm. to a person every one of them is just like of like yeah, of course. Like you put your knee on someone's neck that cuts off. Like he didn't suffocate. He blood was cut off to his brain and that's how you go unconscious. And then if you just like in, in MMA, that's what that's when you tap out and a referee is there to say stop. And it happens hundreds of thousands of time a day in jujitsu like practitioner gyms all over the world. It happens uh-huh. in competition. 
and on a street when three other cops are standing there and it's happening and no referee is there to just be like, bro, the guy's unconscious. Yeah. Like, well, what? That, well, like the idea that George Floyd's life would have been saved by an MMA ref is yeah. like fucking crazy to me. Like, well, or, but, or just even even just like, is it isn't a ref a better analogy for what a police is yeah. person supposed to do in a sort of in a sense call balls like, and strikes and like just like like this fight is over like we are not enemies like that cop is not an enemy of george floyd in fact the history between them is that they knew each other like or maybe they were enemies i don't know it does but it doesn't matter that's not the point they worked they worked apparently they worked at the same place and whether they knew each other or not was they but they both did security at a club and his and frankly in that moment neither person's background whether Derek chauvin is a racist and whether george floyd was a drug addict doesn't matter in that moment what a ref is supposed to do is say this 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 situation right now is remedied at minute one where you've got george floyd on the ground and he's not resisting you lift up you move on with your life you get them like i mean i I, you know i would argue that i don't that i I don't think a cop should be able to do that (laughs) no i I totally agree totally agree like it's just like that like like the whole like the the wildness of it being so long is is another thing is just more evidence of something that is you know it's like honestly it's like you know we everybody was told about michael jackson a really long time and it was really hard to turn away from two guys talking about what happened to them as kids i definitely do believe them i you know i understand some people don't um but it, it's, it's as much as believing them is, 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 is as much as I blinded myself to a fact that was evident across, you know, my life. You know what I mean? Like, yes, a lot of people bring up, you know, you know, cases and sue people that are that have a lot of money to try to get money out of them. You know, that was a lot of parents and a lot of kids that sued that guy. And it's just hard to, you know, regardless of any of that, it's like a. Uh, this is like a terribly obvious thing. You know Robert Johnson? Mm-mm. Okay, so Robert Johnson was blues singer in the was a you know was a guitar player and singer, mm-hmm. wrote songs in twenties and thirties. Died supposedly at the hands of a jealous husband who poisoned him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's sort of heralded as the first of the twenty seven club. He wrote songs that were covered by the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. and Cream later on. Sort of just a, an incredibly great songwriter, guitarist, and singer. Mm-hmm. Sort of iconic, mythic, American, sort of legendary guy. And there were, uh, there have been two photos of him that have, you know, dude died in 1938 or something like that. There have been two photos of him that everybody's known. There was another photo that came out a couple of years ago that some people eventually were like, no, nah, that's not him. Um, and this photo came out in May. And his daughter was like, had it in the attic for like 70 years and was like, you know, I just never. And so there's this third picture of this guy. And it's the only one that like he's sort of smiling in a kind of candid mm-hmm. image. Like one other image, he's sort of scary looking. His fingers are like fucking spiders. They're huge, long fingers. And he's sort of standing there and it's like in a photo booth. And he's got a sort of serious face. The other one, he's wearing a pinstripe suit and it seems like a promo shot. And then this third picture exists and he's kind of got a grin. He's got the guitar again. And it's just like this light. You All of a sudden, this thing that has never existed has always existed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, all of a sudden, this person gains this, like a whole 
you know, perspective, a whole portion of them, themselves. And similarly, similarly, I think there's something about just just like talking about how how awful Trump is is not the conversation. It's like how awful what happened to George Floyd. He's he's a wonderful catalyst in this point. He's you know what I mean. Like it's a horrific thing. The fact that he's sort of built up as the figurehead of this 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 trigger for this moment. That's beautiful because what happened to him is egregious. But what happened to him is not is not more egregious than something else. And I you know what I mean. And talking about nuance, I think that's one of the things that's mm-hmm. that they've tried to sort of hammer out of this moment. You know what I mean? They've actually, not that there aren't other blunt images and as you sort of say, slogans and um, bumper stickers, but it's like, this is terrible. This is not it. (laughs) This is like, this is, here is the picture. You just opened the book. Look at this. You know what I mean? Like that, you know. One of the most succinct, uh, and again, like I I just want to, I mean, again, anybody who (laughs) maybe listened to this and got mad when I said the, when I, when I said something about bumper stickers or being flippant, like I I do want to be, they're not going to listen to this part. They probably turned it off and got pissed. But like, to be clear, like I, I understand. Like I think there's a purpose. Like you have to understand what it is you're talking about first, and there, that starts with like, what is my big picture goal here? Like, what what is it? You know, mm-hmm. and it can be a blunt instrument for good for good reason to crack open a thing. And one of the bluntest or, or one of the most succinct memes that I saw come out of it was like, what did you want us to do? Like we kneeled in po- in protest peacefully. And you told you called us sons of bitches and told us to get off the field. Like we literally did the most peaceful thing, and then Derek Chauvin did that very thing. And so, like, like I felt like that. Like I don't. In terms of a uh, of a like just trying to take out the shock and awe from people like you know people I grew up with who are sort of like I don't understand why everybody. It's like uh, bro, like come on, like. We need come with us. Come with me. Like I'm not saying you are a bad person. I just you you're not you're clearly not seeing it. You don't live mm-hmm. it every day. You don't walk into the pan yards I walk into in Brooklyn mm-hmm. when the cops come and search everybody's bag but mine. Mm-hmm. They walk right by me. Like they I'm not saying that those cops are bad people or that they set out that day to fuck over black people. What I am saying is that you need to just understand what that feels like. You need to understand what it feels like to look at a 12-year-old girl getting her bag searched. And she's done nothing but go to school that day and played pan from 7 p.m. till 2 in the morning. I waltz in, and I've probably got weed in my bag anyway. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it, and again, like, it's just a symptom of the system. And I, like, a lot of people just never experience it. Like... <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I think like I think it's both not only just a symptom of the system, but then also and like something that feeds back on itself. It's like not everybody who gets there, who ends up finding themselves sort of playing into what that system has given is completely corrupted or influenced by the system, but has chosen to be there because the system fits their ethic. You know what I mean? So that that's the part where just like like. It's not that the church seems like a safe haven for pedophiles. It's that the idea of hiding your sexuality and being beyond sexuality is something that is outmoded for this era, I think. This gets into another sort no, of no, thing. No, no, I agree with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to ask, to ask somebody to live that life right now, not that it ever was okay, but I just know that for, I mean, it's like, it seems ridiculous and clearly no one is following it you know what i mean it's like 
it's not like it's changing anything. It's actually just creating a safe space for people to be deviant. Right. You know what I mean? And by deviant, I mean specifically doing things against the will of another participant. Otherwise, you know what I mean? And pedophilia, which is, you know, horrible. But like, I'm not talking about any particular behavior between two willing participants. It's just like the fact that it's not allowed for that place creates a setting. Just like the the being a police officer creates a setting for people who want to do some shit like that. I, it's you know something I, mean? I feel like we're we're all. And I said this on a podcast the other day. I got asked to be at the last minute. There's a friend of mine, this guy Sheldon Hoyt, who uh, <clears throat> he's a he's in the pan scene, but he does a he's a DJ and he hosts this show every week, and it was called Soka Passion Live. And he's like, "Hey man, can you hop on and talk about your experience as a white person in the steel pan world?" And I was like, "Huh? Uh, oh, sure." You know, and I so I log on to this thing. And it's like me and four other people, and they're all you know. I'm the only white guy on the panel, and mm-hmm. um, it was uh, it was intense. I mean, it was like, but in a good way. And I there was a um, uh, this one woman, Mecca Rose, came came out of the gates pretty hot, and and I the first words that really sort of where I, where she said them, and I sort of didn't hear the next minute of what she was saying was she's like, you need to go get your people. She's like, I'm tired. Like she didn't know who I was, and we had like this is where we first met. So it's like literally the worst place to meet and get to know somebody is on you know on a DJ live set, you know, on Zoom. And all I could say, and, and it turns out her brother was killed by the cops. He was suicidal. The cops came. He made a motion towards his father. The cops shot him in the back. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like so. Of course, that trauma is like. Of course, that's what she's coming from, and I totally understand. And I just was like come on my podcast. Let's just talk. Like I don't. I'm not, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm not going to tell you that your feelings aren't valid. And, but I'm also going to say, like, I, when you say go get your people, I'm going to tell you right now, like between now and the next time we get in the podcast, I don't know what that means. And I don't know how to do that. But you, do, I, 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 well, I don't know what that, I don't know exactly what you meant. But the thing that I interpret, it's like, I think it's, it's part of the conversation that's sort of come up a lot right now, which is like, you know, I don't have too much issue having to sort of sift through my social media, which is filled with a lot of white people passing along booklets about how to talk to their black friends. Um, I find it a little tedious and it does feel like not to be of the moment, but virtue signaling in a way that is sort of not helpful. But um, I do get the idea of saying like, this isn't our problem. No, no, yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Like saying it's like you actually like the conversation is something that white people need to figure out. Like, absolutely. And that's, you know, I think that's why speaking of one of the blunt things, I think in this moment, that's also really good. is like, is it cool right now to to do this? Like all the all the unfortunate short answers are definitely true. It is trendy and cool to be a part of these protests. It is sort of easy to sort of like virtue signal in ways that make it feel like you can appear an ally. And I don't think that that means that somebody necessarily isn't, but it is a place where it's unbelievably easy to post a fucking black square and call yourself, you know, a part of the Legion of the Good. And like, whatever that is, like, that's all fine. It's, it's the, you know, it's, it feels like it's about actual investigation and then not letting things slide in the communities you find yourself in where you realize somebody is taking advantage of the fact that they're only talking to other white people. Well, and I think this is, this, this for me though, is like where the crux of the, where like when I, um, when I confronted Mecca 
in that podcast. When I say confronted, that's definitely the wrong word. Where where mm-hmm. she and I sort of hit, and I the barrier I realized I wasn't going to be able to fix in that conversation was the get your white people. If that was the if that was the the only like for me for me to say okay I'll do that that was the only way to get through the next ten words with Mecca. I felt like I, what I told her is like I can't do that right now. But what I can say is come on my podcast. I would love to just hear more about you so that I can understand where you're coming from, mm-hmm. and so you can understand where I'm coming from. Because I think what you're I agree with what you're saying. Like, but she I, doesn't need to understand where you're coming from. I think that's part of the. Well, that's but part of the but to me that's where I disagree. Where I where okay, I where, what, why why do I disagree? Yeah, yeah. But what is it about? Why does it matter where a white point of view is right now when there's not a white because I'm not telling her a white point of view. I'm telling her my point of view. And I and I understand that's part of my part of my identity. But what I'm saying is because, Gray, I mean, this is this is to me where I feel like where I'm where. Well, here's the other reason why she absolutely said yes, came on a podcast and it was amazing. Cool. And I know her and I know her better now and she knows me better now. And we had a lovely conversation and Mm -hmm. I feel like we got somewhere and. I feel like that argument of like it's not their responsibility to participate in the conversation is why it's only white people talking to white people. And why that conversation is never going to be fixed is because that is the hard conversation. Sitting in a room with somebody telling them and them saying to you something you know you can't do because mm-hmm. the reality is, Gray, mm-hmm. the conversations to convince relatives of mine, friends of mm-hmm. mine not to vote for Trump or to not post All Lives Matter, those don't happen publicly. They can't. Yeah, they yeah. Can. And so when someone says, go get your people or, hey, white people, you need to like stand up for it's like, OK, no, no, no. I agree. But what yeah. I'm tired of is this mm-hmm. idea that it's easy, that there's an obvious answer to it. And that if you just oh, well, if you see this, then you must say this. It's like, no, 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 no. I think I think humans are different. And I think we need to we need to have empathy for each other in order to understand. And in that moment with Mecca. I, I just I, I have a hard t- I understand I get what you're saying and, and not not talking about your conversation with Mecca but uh, I don't I, I think it would have to be coming from a different point of view really hard to have empathy for a white person if say I was not a white person and a white person was asking me to have empathy for for how hard it might be to have a hard conversation with somebody who's a racist. I don't think I'd care about how hard that is. Well, but, but and like, I'm not. Of course, those conversations are hard. You know what I mean? Of, absolutely. But I don't think it matters at all that they are and that that conversation takes place. Like, of course, you hope and that's hard work and that's real. Um, I just don't think it actually matters in public at all. One example being like uh, I remember reading this interview with a the son of one of the most famous musicians who's of the 20th century. And he said this thing and he's a musician himself and a good musician. And he said this thing about like, you know, it's, it's really, you know, he's just basically complaining about his predicament. Um, nobody will really ever take me seriously or really hear what I do for me because of where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Now, you know what, that has got to be a strange thing to bear, particularly if you choose the life that you've chosen to follow in the footsteps of this wildly famous person. Mm-hmm. I imagine that that, is real and I have empathy for what must be what that is. I think it's actually incumbent on the person who's in that circumstance and the person who's saying that to absolutely never say that in public and never complain about that truth to 
anyone in public because you were born with hundreds of millions of dollars. You were born with a circumstance where you actually are in front of and have audience. And whatever sort of small bit of your personal individualism you feel is sort of looked over because of that circumstance, it doesn't, the conversation doesn't weigh. It doesn't mean I don't have sympathy for that person's circumstance. It's just, that's not something for the public sphere, I don't think. Yeah. I don't want you to try to show me that you're enlisting empathy. And like, that's, that's the point. If like, there has been such a dearth of empathy that in this moment, to try to address what's difficult the other way about trying to make some recompense in a in an intellectual sphere, in a family sphere, in private spaces. And, and again, I have I don't have like a ton of Trump people in my life, but I have a couple that I mean very, very few. But like I and there and those aren't public conversations. And not because not because like uh, I'm not willing, just because there's nothing that would happen. And it's like you know, it starts like in the times that I have like sort of in some sort of thing, be like, you can't possibly believe that because that's an anti-human thing to say. I, I really have to hope that you're not a murderous soul. You know what I mean? Like whatever. It's like, I'm not going to, you know, come at that sort of hard. Those are private conversations because that's a place that you can try to take somebody else's humanity in. You can try to take them in and try to say like, I know this is coming from someplace that it feels like there's a poison. And I want to s sort of try to understand what the poison is. However, again, I think like not in terms of conversations with people like I want to know where somebody comes from and yes come to a place and have a back to back it's like yes we both will through sort of being witness to each other hopefully get to a new place and a wider space absolutely but asking for empathy in that moment it's just like it feels like not right now like I don't know well I I I would encourage you to listen to that podcast because I don't think I want to be clear that I never asked for empathy. What I ask, no, no, no. what I ask, what I well, and I and I will say this. I think I'll go to my grave with this. This, and I think I'm right about this. Um, mm -hmm. I think if you're going to have a conversation with somebody, mm -hmm. it is a, it's two ways. I think if you want to give someone a platform to state their viewpoints and never be challenged or questioned on it, that's a different thing, and that's not what I'm interested in doing. And with Mecca. Or with Sheldon, or with Wayne, or with any of my friends that I talk to. I mean, it's why I'm frustrated by this whole conversation because I see a lot of the data points. I see the like, here's X, Y, and Z why we need to abolish the police or defund ICE or X, Y, and Z, right? And then I have a conversation. It's anecdotal. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll put it in the anecdotal category where I literally ask, do you think we should abolish the police? And those people, to a person say, well, no, that's silly. And then when I bring that up in a conversation with my friends, I'm labeled as the guy with the black friend. And I'm like, well, no, no, hold up a second. I'm not saying this is the way what all black people think. I'm not mm -hmm. painting with a broad brush. I'm saying I've had a conversation with somebody who sees the world differently from the article you read in The New Yorker mm -hmm. or something. And I'm a little frustrated by this idea that that yeah, I'm, I'm frustrated. I think I'm very suspect of the amount of white people who are talking to white people about race. I'm very suspect of it. And oh, I, and I and, think, and, and, and to be clear, to be clear, what Mecca told me or what any of like these conversations that I have, there is empathy gained. Mm -hmm. There is understanding from the other side of my story, not because I demand it, just because I give it the way I gave it to you, which is oh, like who oh, I yeah. am, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, and, and, again, I, and I feel uh, like that is a, that right now, I feel like that is something people are really bad at. People are horribly inept at under or just 
I will say this for folks that are on the right who are mm-hmm. incapable of understanding what it's like to have, be separated from your children at the border, are yeah. incapable of understanding what it's like to have a troop, a person in the Marines who's going to be deployed to, to Afghanistan, possibly having somebody put a bounty over their head and have your president defend the guy in public. Somebody who can't possibly imagine what it's like to have somebody who's gay or transgender in their life. Like, yeah. well, but most likely also, the, I think I think the thing that's hard for for you know, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> people who lean wildly left is or to in terms of hearing something that it's like, you know, I don't think it's a lack of imagination. I think if it's a lack of will, and that, you know, it's not about what that is. I mean, those people undoubtedly have mirrored empathy in their life and people they care about. And the only difference would be to imagine their face on any of those people. It's like that, that's, that's will. And again, going back to the speaking of nuance again, mm-hmm. um, I think a conversation with anyone arrives at sort of widened empathy, particularly if both participants are willing to sort of be present in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I was speaking specifically to asking people to understand what's hard about trying to speak to racist people in your life and try to sort of try to get them to see that there is something guiding their perspective that is not only not helping them and not helping other people, but is anti-human and is is born of some things that don't have anything to do with them. It's literally anti-human behavior. And like that, what's difficult about those conversations, I don't think matters. I don't no, think that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's all. I it's not, it's not about not and it's and, and I agree with you. It's not about solely just sort of making a platform for other people to speak, because that's not what a conversation is. Absolutely. It's just that actually the nuanced thing works. It's like it's the pendulum. It's like it's not I mean, it, you know, an example that would be it's like right as Me Too is sort of happening, the backlash of people were like, what? So I now can't say hello or what? So I now can't say you have a nice dress on? What? So I now can't, you know what I mean? Like dudes being like, this is, you know, what are you, you're, you're blowing up my spot. It's like, yeah, maybe don't say it like an asshole. Like it's actually, it's already nuanced. Like this is not like you even just doing that. You're, it's horrible. Like that's horrible. You're, you're, you're trying as if there's something about women saying, this behavior is so over the top. You don't understand. We get objectified and possibly feared for our lives from the way that men have treated us for an extremely long time. And it's commonplace. There's a Woody Allen movement. The end of fucking Annie Hall, the dude Marshall like talks about like their 16 year old twins. You know what I mean? We're talking about two 40 year old guys in that movie. You know what I mean? Like that was just, it was culture. It absolutely was. My mother, a thing that is speech that she used to give because she worked for Domestic Violence Coalition, talked about waiting by the door, holding a phone for the cops to come upstairs with her then husband. And the cops saying on the walkie talkie, like, yeah, we're going to be upstairs. It's only going to take a second. It's only a domestic. And it's like, you know, she's bleeding and swollen. You know what I mean? It's like that conversation. And then when somebody says it's gone too far, they're ruined. You know, now now we can't. Even, you know what I mean? Like whatever that like. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what it is. That's responding to it as if like that that's the bluntness that to me is is the problem. It's like this is not the same. This is actually nowhere near as blunt or the same as what the initial polit- politically correct conversations were in the mid 90s. This is actually more about someone asking for more nuance and then feeling blowback. And that's why similarly, it's like when you have a slogan like abolish the police 
you know, you read a second, you understand where that comes from. Yeah, you can sort of be annoyed at somebody saying abolish the police as if it's a sort of anarchist hymn. But it's like, that isn't what that's saying. And it's like what the conversation we had and like some of the points that you made, I think are exactly what that's saying. And those slogans, you know, I, I agree. I mean, slogans in general, it's like. Well, I think just to, to zoom out, to zoom out a little bit, like I, to me, I think I, where my anxiety comes is like, when you, when you look at it in the picture of the next four months of leading up to an election, um, there's, there's all this stuff that's true. And then there's how that stuff is weaponized and used to convince an electorate that's locked inside fearful for its life. For, I mean, so just uh, when you graft on, onto it, what is happening right now? Like we're not in a bubble. We're not in a vacuum where we can talk about race and gender and all of these things safely and healthfully, you know, like we are in this moment where humans, nobody alive right now has mm-hmm. experienced what we're all experiencing right now together. Like the, this, yep. this is a completely new thing yeah. though. Tragedy has happened in the past and humans have survived and we'll figure this out. But I do, I do personally, I think um, I want to ask you one more question. That's really not related to any of this, cool, but, cool, this, cool, but, cool, but, cool. but great. I, again, just to say like, I'm grateful to have these conversations with you. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. And I, I wish, I wish there was a social media tool like Facebook that allowed for this as easily as it is to post something because yeah. I think Facebook is an algorithm that humans teach it what to give it. Yeah. And we have taught it to give us slogans and bumper stickers and Trump has used it. Um, it's propaganda and it's a tool. It's a tool that's great at it. And I'm, I'm personally, when we zoom out and look at, all, everything. Mm-hmm. I'm very worried at the way humans talk to each other um, mm-hmm. online, as if it is the way you would speak in person. Mm-hmm. I think oh, yeah. I think 90 percent of the what people post online, they would never say face to face to face, even if they mm-hmm. told you you they would. And the reason I can say that is because the number of times I've reached out to someone who said something patently crazy mm-hmm. on the left or the right, and offered for them to come on my podcast and talk about it, not a person. Probably done it 30 times, Gray not a person it's because they know damn well that like you get 10 seconds into a conversation and then nuance creeps in and there's no there there and that's okay i don't i'm not going to force anybody or troll them online because they didn't come on but to me it's a symptom it's a symptom that we're dying you remember what remember (laughs) what was the what was it no but like the well no no i mean i think you know it's like it's like a wrong path it's like um uh you know that um you know, you know that the story of the uh, um, well, two things. First, real fast, uh, when when Google made that the sort of the AI Twitter account or something like that, mm-hmm. and all the people like just turned it into like this like Nazi homophobic yeah. <laughs> like it took like moments of trolls to just com- like create like this 45 seconds that's how exponentially fast this <laughs> meme culture were, were, it was works. so that, that shit was hysterical and amazing but no it's gonna say like you know it it just it feels like you know I mean it, it's like think about how how quick a period of time what a selfie is became to mean something else mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I can remember the first time I had I didn't have judgment with what is I, I I where I switched in terms of thinking about what a selfie is. I'm I'm not from a generation where taking a picture of yourself was remotely easy, and all of a sudden it is by the time I'm, you know, 25 years old, yeah. and the sort of immediate sort of industry behind what a selfie sort of is and does for a person, you know, I I, I you know, is still not a part of my life, but. I remember being in Portugal, playing a gig at a festival in Porto, getting there the morning after um, 
uh, or I guess the night of and finding out that afternoon about Pulse, the Orlando nightclub. Mm -hmm. And like seeing New York Times next day and it was a picture of uh, like the 50 or 60 people that died. And they're all young men. And every one of those pictures, and they're all like between like 18 and 24 or something like that. And every picture was a selfie. And every picture was somebody showing their glorious self. And it was like, it was a lot of people of color. It was a lot of gay men. And it was a lot of young gay men showing themselves in beautiful like pictures that they owned and held themselves. And that was the last picture that the world saw them in that moment, like that thing. It was like, here's, these are the people that died. Not only are they just kids, but every one of those images was theirs. And it was like this actual, it was this, it was this intense thing because I was a world away and I was in a pretty place and it was like, I'm this lucky like other thing. And I saw all these pictures and I was just like, oh, there's something like, there's a different, there's more going on with that. That's not just, that's something else. You know what I mean? Well, it's like, like it's a little bit like the speeding up and slowing down gesture in improv. Like, like there are rules we have, but then when you, but I'm joking a little bit, but when you hear someone use a tool that you're abhorred by and you hear them use it, you're like, oh, okay. Oh yeah. You know, now now, granted this, the selfie is not the speeding up, slowing down. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. of of, No, no, no. But but, I mean, like, I, I mean, I have, I have friends now that are like, that are much younger than me. And the way that I see them engage with social media and how much of them is in their media and how much it doesn't feel indulgent or offensive to me. Like there's a different, like there's different fluency with it. Like they're not taking it seriously the same way I am. Like like their channel is like, it's just a part of their blood. It's like a different thing. And part of that has to do with, you know, how much you engage, how much it's been a part of your life the whole time. But the other thing is like, Oh, it's not quite as poisonous. I agree with you. I think there is deep poison in a lot of that social media. But the thing I was going to say before, real quick, there's a podcast about. It's called uh, um, uh, some uh, the, the Munster Rebellion. Okay, you know what the Munster Rebellion was. So it's like we're right before the Thirty Years' War. I think we're in Munster and the Anabaptists. So the extreme Baptists mm-hmm. after the Reformation you know, basically end up in Munster and a wild thing happened. And it like, it, it is something that went awry, right? Like Martin Luther, cool idea, good problems, nice corrals. You know what I mean? Like everything's fucking, it's peachy, you know, and it like leads to sort of plenty of other stuff. And that goes a down thing, but there's this, it, the Anabaptists go down this rabbit hole and the Munster rebellion is a wild story. That is a, create and store the tale of the two yawns is another way it's talked about mm-hmm. there's a podcast hardcore history oh yeah yeah dan carl okay there's a four hour episode that's a single episode about it all right and i can't remember what it is prophet of doom prophets of doom oh yeah, yeah. okay I, I haven't listened to that one but i've seen it unreal unreal uh, anyway but he's, my, he's my, a national he, treasure by the way anybody who yeah. doesn't know dan carlin and man fully true fully true but but going but but just to say that same thing I, I agree with you. I think the way that it's going right now, it, it does, it, it leads to sort of, it, it poisons intention, poisons speech. Everything is sort of, it, it, it's not helping itself. But I think in, this, in the way that it's hurting itself is only making room. Like, it's not that I believe progress moves to a better thing. I think it actually just moves. So I don't know what is coming, but I think it's evident that it, it can't stay or it'll splinter and it'll just be sort of, states on the coast 
and then states in the middle. I don't know. I, I, I think social media, I, I feel like, before we get to our last question here, I feel like social media is, it is a state in and of itself. It's like the 51st state that, or the 53rd <laughs> territory that we all agree. Like there's Port, you know, Puerto Rico, St. Croix, St. John, St. Thomas, and then Facebook and yeah. Twitter. And I feel like, I don't think there's one or the other is going to win out. I think there's going to be a crack and like the system is going to shake and stuff will settle down. Like we're going to, there's a lot of assumptions going on right now on social media. There's a lot of assumptions around language. There's a lot of assumptions around what people know about you because you've posted something on social media. It's like, I posted this. So therefore, if you don't know this about me, you're, it's like, whoa, 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 hold up a second. There's like billions of hours of content online and you can't assume that everybody's li- like poured over every ounce of what you've put out there. Um, and I think it's leading, I, I just see the way it's leading, the way conversations are happening. I have a fear that it's going to break. And I don't, like you're saying, I don't know when. I think it'll be for good, but I don't mm-hmm. think it'll be for the type of good that a lot of people that I know really well think it's headed. Um and I and I again I don't mean that with any judgment or hate because I don't I, I mean these are all pe- these are former soci students people I love and care about people who were in your pet Manny Petty lecture lecture gray like and I see the way now they're outside of this this test tube that I had them in mm-hmm. communicating in ways that if they were in soci I would I would question you know and so I'm but I can't because that's not my place you know and I, I don't know so I'm just worried but my my question. To wrap this up, Gray, we have exactly yeah, four. Please. Oh, you're running into your lady. You disappeared. No, I got it. I don't want to admit that I just killed an ant and I feel bad about it. Oh, dude. There's like billions of them to every one of us. You're fine. <laughs> anyway, continue. The sanctity of life. You clearly, I, uh, I love every time you come back, Gray, you just emerge out of that. Oh, I know. Chest. Oh, no. Um, okay. So, Gray, in your last uh, 13 minutes here, before I got to let you go, um, right. you, I mentioned Manny Petty a second ago. Um, you gave an amazing sort of talk at SOCI that was way longer than I think you're going to be able to summarize here. But I feel like it would be a good thing if anybody found this little nugget of you talking right now. I feel like it might help people get some bearing or get their footing under them in a time. Um, I think one of the assumptions that I'm worried about is that everybody is dealing with this pandemic and dealing with being locked inside and being dealing with the anxiety of having to now make art online. If that's if that's having, a, to, having to make music or communicate oh, yeah, yeah. online like we're doing, um, that can cause a lot of anxiety in people. If that was the only thing we were talking about, forget about race or any of these other things. That's enough to cause me to crumble, and I feel like I got my shit pretty much together, you know. <laughs> and so I'm curious if you can um, give the like Cliff Notes version of the Manny Petty sort of like pep talk. Um, if you even, I don't know, if that's even an appropriate thing to ask of you in 13 minutes. I mean, but what, what do you say to folks right now who are concerned or curious or lost? About about making things? Yeah, just, I mean, just like, okay, so there's all the crises, the sort of existential crises, crises mm-hmm. that we, we talked about as a society that I think we need to deal with. But like, you know, prior to this, a lot of us made music and we thought about that stuff in a way that felt healthy. And uh-huh. I have found myself having a hard time re-engaging with that part. And I'm just curious how you have done it and what advice you might have to somebody who's like, I was 19, I was a sophomore in college, and now I'm on Zoom all day. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, okay. Um, 
Um, I love you, buddy. <laughs> I love you too. Um, first of all, so as is evidenced by the conversation we just had, like our heads are in a lot of different places right now. Uh, conversations that are happening, like half, like it, it would feel odd to talk about anything else. And I think that's part of the place I'm eventually getting to. And in April, you know, I had a number of friends that like made records, fucking did it. Like lockdown happens, they were going to be on tour. It's like making another record, doing the thing, like bang soon. No, no, no. And, you know, given what this is and given what people say about pandemics, not just talking about that now, you know, it seems like this might be something that will become more common in the world. Now, one thing I didn't understand when people talked about pandemics, what this is, is that one of the things that allows a pandemic to sort of last a really long time or get big is that it's not as deadly as shit like Ebola. Like I can remember when this started, like thinking like, well, we're lucky it's not like a deadly one. And then understanding something that makes sense. It's like, well, it kind of can't be because those things force a quarantine that leads to death. So the disease can't. It burns itself out quick. It burns itself out. Yeah, exactly. And so like, you know, putting that sort of later understood as a rational fear away and sort of getting a sense of this thing and being like, well, this happening, you know, this will change, that changes the world. Like the world will be different with regards to it. Now it doesn't mean we'll handle it better or worse. It's mm-hmm. just the idea of it being a possibility will be true for the rest of our lives. So the way that April felt, you know, the idea that the food supply chain, that the supply chain just period could go off. Like, like people, you know, get all of that, what that moment felt like. Toilet paper, bacon. Toilet paper, <laughs> exactly. All of that shit. The way that that moment felt, you know, probably won't ever really feel quite like that ever again. Even, you know, should something else happen that could even become more egregious, it just won't feel like that again. And, you know, I think about some of the stuff now and like and now realizing that I I, when I thought I wasn't making anything, I did. I was making these sort of snippets of stuff. Mm. But when I look back at it now, it's like I didn't have that. I, I, I didn't have access really to thinking of that as being a part of what was going on. And part of it was thinking Oh, that's what everybody's, you know, it's like, oh, now, now it's like, as if, as if it wasn't true before that I'm a part of the population of the living on the earth. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, now I'm a part of the population of the living on the earth. Like, no, it's like, oh, okay. And it took me April and it took me getting some better patterns in my life. Like, you know, exercising in a way, doing less sort of bad things, spending actually a ton less money because I was making no money. And like I got some some actually other stuff did change for me that ended up being sort of pretty positive, but not about like creative energy. I had some mechanical energy. I had some things that I would play every day because it felt like a nice way to spend time and sort of a better version of getting out of my head. But the thing that I've come back to, first of all, nothing beats a deadline. So whatever it is, if it has to do with sort of making something for a screen or sending something to a friend or wanting to make something that's a part of some online sort of thing or any of that stuff, the idea of having a deadline helps you access having to do something. And at the end of it, it always feels better. You know what I mean? That always has always been a thing that felt better. But more importantly, it's it, it it reconciling that it sort of is not important 
And the only reason I say sort of is because it also is. So it's like, it's definitely not important. What's not? And what, what you want to make. No. Okay. And like the argument that it can come really quick is like, if someone has audience and they have access to audience that that gives them more reason to sort of tickle their indulgence more. And somebody thinking that that's the reason that they want to access audience is to be able to indulge themselves. And that if that's the route that you get to your creativity, it'll probably not work out. You know, you probably won't because if it's serving getting audience not and nothing wrong with that, I'm not knocking that. It's just that if you're having a conundrum about making, I think you have to be honest with yourself about whatever it is that you're doing when you're making, because to make it evident that you are here is something that you want to witness when you make something, something like happens and it comes back to you. And then you're there. When I was a kid, I can remember when I was a kid, I say, I mean like early high school, I can remember seeing, um, saying that I really liked Rothko and that I really liked blocks, these blocks of color. And I was like, Rothko's my shit. Like that's like, I like, yeah. What do you, what do you like? I really, I just really like Rothko. I'm a Rothko and, guy. Yeah. I'm a Rothko. I'm more of a color like, field guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is my vibe. Yeah, exactly. This is here's my vibe. But like, and, and if I'm honest about what that was, is like my initial reaction was it's like, there is something very austere and it feels sort of, um, impenetrable and it felt both simple and deeply complicated. And I like to align myself with something that felt like it added depth to whatever somebody else might perceive about me. Mm -hmm. And so I was using it. I was using my affection for it as a means to sort of apply something to myself. Later I'm in college and I'm learning to play over chord structures Mm -hmm. that are a little denser and chords are changing a little quicker. And to, in order to sort of like, really learn to flow because I didn't really practice enough to get my lines together so that I could really flow hard through some like complicated songs. You'd pick your signposts and I would play and I would then, you know, learn to do it and be really good. And then I'd pick my places to be really outside the chords and then be able to come back so I could give the illusion to whatever audience member that I had some com- complicated gesture or idea about how to sort of approach something that would give them a perspective that I had a sort of complicated organized Um, and one thing that I found out about both of those things both of those are you know the thoughts of a sort of like frantic anxious teenager but looking back now the anxiety about the Rothko thing was the fact that I had some illusion that liking it but not understanding it was something I actually did just like it like I, I did like them And I wasn't willing to sort of admit that it was born of a sort of an initial impulse that was not, that didn't have too much context. You know, I I did, I liked it. I liked looking at it. I could sit with it for a long time. I have no problem saying that now. Yeah. When I sit and want to make something now, when I want to sort of like dive in the way that it affects the rest of my life, the reason I, I would, I guess the reason I'm going down this path as opposed to being able to say what the Manny Petty thing is, what that conversation was, is like admitting whatever falsehood you're presenting in a room, I think is deeply important to be able to sort of not change what you're going to do, but reassess the way that you're doing it so that at least you can be present while you do it, as opposed to worry that you have to sort of qualify something. And so right now, I understand the thing that feels different is there is you do have to qualify both to yourself and to everybody else, something that you're going to put out into the world. 
and not for the reasons that you think you do, that why I'm deserving of attention or like whatever that sort of stuff is. I just, I, for me, I just need to know it's deliberate. Yeah. I mean, one of the, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's like, and like the way that you push has to be with care. Well, you know what I mean? The way that you ask for attention has to be with care and you have to admit that you're asking for attention. Well, and especially and like, now, like I think intentions, um, one of the things too, I, I just to sort of, I think this relates to our conversation prior, but, um, intention is, is, is something I feel like as human beings, like you need to, you need to really dig hard to know what it is in yourself, but in others too. Um, and you've always been somebody whose intentions, I feel like you, you always make it clear what your intentions are. And especially now, like I think when the the art world, the world is upside down. What, I mean, mm-hmm. if your intention was like, I need to make art because the concert hall wants me to put, wants me to sell at least 75% of the seats. Otherwise I don't get X, Y cut of the door. It's like, well, if that's the reason you're making, well, okay, well, Con- Carnegie hall is going to be seating people six feet from each other. So you you shouldn't be basing your art off of what concert halls are going to be able to hold, you know, like right. you should not that you shouldn't base your thing off of what, you know, you, of course you want people to love it, but right now the crucible is pretty hot and it's the stuff that has intention and clarity and is thought through and is genuine and deliberate that is going to rise to the top. And un- that's unfortunate because I think a lot of people are going to realize their stuff wasn't so thought through, but that's right now everything's being sort of distilled down to this one medium. And it's just, it's fascinating to watch how people deal with it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, and, and I think it's also safe and not just sort of, it's not just demurring to also say like, I don't know when it ends. It's like, you know, when you watch people on social media and, you know, and my, you know, the social media train that I see is like an echo chamber for basically for most of my shit. Like I, I, I don't have too much dissent. I don't, people aren't posting too many things I disagree with. They, they might go about it in a way that I find tedious, but like for the most part, I'm seeing all the same shit. And the one thing that is sort of still, it's teetering now. It's just like, you know, people getting back to their songs and their cats and their vistas, you know what I mean? And like, whatever sort of small trickle of how people get back to that. Okay. I hope what was rampant for about a month and a half doesn't go away. I hope that stays as being a part of people's way of using that space. Similarly, just like when people were calling out the Met, when people are calling out all these institutions of being like, thank you for posting your black square. Can you post a picture of your board? You know what I mean? Can you post a picture of who you've commissioned in the past 25 years like it's it's possible to keep working and planning and organizing yourself and the art that you make and the the people that you surround yourself to make it with and it's also okay to be doing that and also maybe making some space right now you know what i mean it's not it's it i don't think it takes away and like when people i mean like you know i i work i play music with you know with I happen to play music with a lot of people of color and it's like that, you know, and I get hired to be in places. And so my conundrum is not directly tied to my bank account mm-hmm. in terms of, in terms of how I or have live, but in terms of what I make and how I sort of see that it's like, I think 
I think it's okay to sort of feel urgent and to be making because you have to and to like have a plan about how you want to sort of give and present things to the world and whatever you have sort of coming that you have to present to the world. But it's also okay to in the moment be like, and maybe that's not going to be right now. Maybe that maybe what yeah. my plan was for the next four months is not just blown up because of the pandemic, but also because of something else. Maybe that's not right. Well, now. one of the things that uh, just to wrap it up, Greg, um, you one of the things you said to me in that hotel room, um, and I'm probably paraphrasing, but I, I feel like uh, moments in my life that have been burned into my psyche that I can't take out. One of, that was one of those. And I mean this in a good way. That conversation, you said something to me like your feelings aren't proof of anything. Like you're saying, you just said what you said because of your trauma, not because of truth. And I, I was like, fuck you. Like, you're right. <laughs> God damn it. And I, what, I, what, I, what I hope people, artists, anybody coming out of this who is at all worried about how you're going to do it. Like, I, I hope you are aware of the things that you've gotten better at. Thing, like, there's things in my life that has been, I've had to sharpen tools in my shed I hadn't, that I didn't even know I was going to need. And that's great. It, it actually yeah. feels useful. It's, totally. For me, it's like final cut. Like I've gotten better at final cut, you know, it's like, I never wanted to, but it actually like, it's useful to me because I'm using it in things that aren't music related. You know, I'm helping my wife out with her church services, like all these things. Um, but also be aware of where you're traumatized because sometimes the way you make art or the way you see the world, the way you react to something is because of trauma from this moment we're all in. So like, I just want to, like when we talk about empathy or we talk about any of these things, like let's try to understand that, listen, I'm a racist. I'm also absolutely traumatized by shit in my life and I react to them in ways that aren't rational. Um, Absolutely. And I am just grateful, Gray, to have you in my life because you're someone who early on, prior to me having a therapist, you were the first person to tell me your feelings aren't proof of anything. <laughs> so I appreciate that about you, bro. And I hope we can have more conversations like this and uh, please stay safe and healthy. You do the same. All right. Love Great. you, buddy. We'll talk to you later. Yes, indeed. Take it easy. See you, buddy. Bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquidrum.com, L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com. Check them out down in Waco, Texas. Todd Meehan, Liquidrum.com. Uh, also, all the steel drums I teach on and perform on were built by Kyle Dunleavy. Um, Dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. And finally, check out uh, the organization Paninmotion.com. Uh, run by Kendall Williams and uh, Jerry Guy and Trisha Guy and Arisha John. They're an amazing organization uh, promoting Pan in Brooklyn. All right, hope you're all doing well. Talk to you soon.